If you are a guest with us this morning, I welcome you, and I hope that you got one of these bulletins when you came in this morning. There's a little tear-off tab there at the bottom. If you feel comfortable giving us some of that information just so we can reach out to say thank you for joining us in a way that we can reach out to you, you can drop that in the offering plate on your way out this morning. But church, as I said a few moments ago, we have now entered into this new sermon series for us leading up to Easter. This sermon series entitled The Promised Redeemer. The promised Redeemer. And for those of us in Christ, we know that that promised Redeemer is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I'm very excited about this series and what we're going to be looking at. There are so many things all throughout the Old Testament that we could look at, and we could honestly spend a year plus going through it all, pointing to Christ. Because as we know, reading through the Word of God, the Old Testament all points to Christ. The whole Word of God does. But in this series, over the next few weeks, we are going to look at specific examples of Old Testament prophecies and the fulfillment of that in Christ Jesus. Just to kind of give you an idea of where we are and where we're going, for some of you that are type A, that are like, oh man, this is going to throw off my whole balance and thinking of it, you might be a little taken back of where we are today in the fulfillment text because we haven't reached Good Friday yet. Now, we celebrate Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, and we know that that is the day that we remember the fact that Christ Jesus died on the cross for us. Well, we're actually going to look at the crucifixion account today. You might say, well, why is that, Brian? Well, it's because when we look in Genesis 3.15 at the, at the Proto-Evangelium, which means first and good news, so it's the first good news, it's the first good news of the gospel that is proclaimed in the Bible, when God tells Satan what is going to end up happening to him in Christ Jesus, we have to look at the text that fulfills that. And that text is, for us today, we're going to see Matthew 27, of where Christ Jesus actually went to the cross and he died for us. And to give you an idea of where we'll go in the weeks after this, next week, for example, and the following weeks, we're going to look at different examples of the ministry of Christ Next week, specifically, we're going to look at the birth of Christ. Yes, we're starting with the death today, and then we go to the birth. But then everything else will lead to Resurrection Sunday. We'll have Palm Sunday, and we'll have celebration of the resurrection. And so I'm really, really excited for this. And I pray that, Lord willing, as long as we're able to gather together in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in the world today, that you will stay with us and that you will follow along with where we are going. And if by chance something happens and we can't gather, we will still do something online and we'll get that out to everybody so that you can be following along with our sermon series. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, uh, excuse me, you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Heal. Uh, as we're looking at this text today, we see that it's in the garden account, and we see that as Adam and Eve have gone and done against God, they have sinned against him, they're at this point in the garden, I'm trying to sum it all up for you, but they're at this point in the garden where they have sinned against God. God tells them, you cannot eat of that fruit on the tree, and you can have anything else, but you cannot mess with that. And they go and Satan slithers his way in in the form of a serpent and he says, oh, surely God didn't mean that. Sounds familiar, right? How many times does the enemy do that in our lives? So he tries to spit these lies at us and tempt us. And in that moment, Adam and Eve sinned against God because they did partake of that fruit. 
Now, Adam, of course, stands there and he says, oh, well, God, it was the woman that you gave to me. It was her. Well, sorry, Adam, but you were standing there and you witnessed it happen. And in that moment, sin runs rampant into this world. And then God comes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. And they're hiding. They realize that they are naked and they, are, they go to hide from God. Now, God, obviously, being sovereign God, being omnipresent, he knows where they are. He knows what they're doing. But he says, where are you? And, and Adam and Eve says that we're, we're, you know, we're, we're hiding and, and, and this has happened. And it's a very, you got to imagine if you're there, it's this very awkward moment. And then in that moment, God says this. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you, sh and you shall bruise his heel. When we read that in the text, it says bruise there in the ESV translation, but it can also be crush. Obviously, this is talking about Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus would be the one that would come. Christ Jesus would be the one that although his heel would be bruised, although he would go to the cross and he would die, he would crush Satan's head. The enemy would be defeated. The enemy has been defeated by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is something for us to celebrate. And so we're going to see this fulfillment today of Christ Jesus coming and going to the cross. So let's stand together as we read and honor the reading of God's word. Matthew 27. I'm going to start in verse 32. We're going to specifically look at verse 45 to 56, but I want to give you context. So we're going to start reading in verse 32. And the word of the Lord says, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. When two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by deride him, wagging their heads, saying, You could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he says, I am the Son of God. Verse 44, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who saw uh, and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we come before you now. And Lord, we look at this text, this beautiful text, God, that, that shows us what our Savior did for us, that shows us the pain and the suffering that Christ Jesus went through on our behalf. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to gather to lift your name. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather right now, Lord, even in the midst of chaos that's going on all around us, and lift high the name of Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would be glorified in these next few moments. I pray, Father God, that you would use me and speak through me however you want to speak, Lord. Lord, bring us conviction if we need it, Lord. Bring us to a point of getting to our knees and crying out to you in repentance, whatever it is, Father. I pray that you would have your way and your will would be done in this place. And Father, I pray the same for Highland Park as, as Brother Ron Dillon, Pastor Ron is there and he's proclaiming your word probably around this time now, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would be glorified during it. We love you, Lord. We pray that all distractions fade away. May you increase, may we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. So the first good news, the proto-evangelium of Genesis 3.15, that first good news, it's prophesied by God himself. He says it there in the garden, and it is fulfilled in the finished work of Christ at the cross of Calvary. So today, if you're taking notes, you're going to hear me say before each of the points that the first good news is fulfilled. And then I'll give you the point. So for point number one, the first good news is fulfilled by the penal substitution of Christ. The first good news is fulfilled by the penal substitution of Christ. And what does penal substitution mean? There must be justice for the sins that have been committed on mankind's behalf. There, there must be this justice. There must be ramifications for those who have sinned against God. And Jesus Christ coming to this earth, going to the cross, is the one who would suffer the penalty for mankind's sins. He would be the one that would go to the cross and suffer on our behalf. He would be the one that as he was nailed to the cross, we were on his mind. He would be the one that although he would go through every bit of pain and suffering and anguish, he still went willingly because it was the mission that God sent him for. It was the purpose. There has to be a penal substitution. It has to happen. The perfect spotless lamb of God has to go and die and take on God's wrath to make the way right between man and God again. 
So that Jesus himself can be the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can get to the Father except by him. That is the purpose of why Jesus comes. That is how the first good news of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour, as it says there in the text, is specifically around noon. And it goes until about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. So from noon to 3, there is darkness all over the earth. And as you're going to see in our text today, there are several different things that happen, these signs and these wonders of these things that are happening in nature that reflect the significance of what is happening at the cross. And there have been many that have said, oh, well, you know, uh, some, some scholars have even said, or, or people that are, that are not necessarily biblical scholars, they'll say, oh, well, there was a dust storm that came about, and that is why that there was so much darkness over the land, or this event happened because of this. No, 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 no. Darkness became, came upon the land because of what was happening to the spotless Lamb of God. That is what is going on here. These things are starting to take place because of what is happening to Jesus on the cross. When it comes to the darkness covering the earth, we can see this as a sign of God's displeasure with what is taking place. There are other places in scriptures where we can see things that are very similar. One in particular is Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declared the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is it's this displeasure of what is happening in this moment. So darkness comes upon the earth for this three-hour stint of time. Verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour, so about 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or if I'm getting a little bit of feedback, buddy, sorry. We see that Jesus cries out in great anguish. And we can see, and you can put this down in your notes, he's actually taking these phrases from Psalm 22. You can read through Psalm 22 and you see this messianic psalm. And you can see the things that Jesus is saying here. Which makes sense with why Matthew is trying to get the, the point across in his writing. We must understand that Jesus does not lose his divine state here though. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, he doesn't be, just become a man anymore. He's not just a, a guy hanging up on the cross. He, he is God in the flesh. That is, that is the reason why it is so significant that, that, that what happens at the cross happens. Because the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, is hanging on the tree. And God's wrath is about to be poured out on him and is being poured out on him in this moment. And so because of that, Jesus does not lose his divine state. If Jesus lost his divine state, the cross, he would die and that would be it. There would be no resurrection. But because he is the son of God, he is God in the flesh. That is how this is accomplished. That is how this is so important. We have to understand, though, in this moment, that as Jesus is taking on the wrath of God, and he's bearing our sins. It's this moment where he, it's almost this, it's this sense of this abrupt kind of loss in communion for a moment with the Father. Because as the penal substitute, and he's there hanging on the cross, and God's wrath is being poured out, God cannot coexist in that moment, and God has to turn away for a moment as the wrath 
of God pours out on his son. And all of that is being done on our behalf. The wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus so that Brian doesn't die and go to hell. So that the way between man and myself, man, and God would be made right again. If I would profess with my mouth that Christ Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I am saved. And I thank God that that has happened in my life. This is that moment where Christ is bearing our sins. Just two examples of scripture that we see this. The band actually just sang of it a moment ago with Jesus Messiah. You've heard it quoted many times here in this church with 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ Jesus did not become a sinner in that moment, but he bore our sins in that moment. And God's wrath is poured out on him because of it. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. This is all being done on our behalf. This is all being done as the fulfillment of what God said in Genesis 3.15. And in Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22, when he says this with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this vindication at the end of Psalm 22. I encourage you to go and read it. There's vindication at the end of Psalm 22, and it's this, this moment of, of, oh man, this is great. The ending is, is better than what you read at the beginning with this forsaking. The same is true for us, is it not? The same is true for us. At the, at the end of what Christ goes through here in this moment, there's the resurrection. Death has been defeated. And because that has happened, the way is made right. For us to profess Christ, to come into a relationship with Christ Jesus, to be saved. Thank God for it. Verse 47 says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. We see here that some of these bystanders are standing by and and they hear Jesus cry out. And they're saying, oh, well, he's crying out to Elijah. Well, there's, there's a, a, just to make it pretty simple for us, the, the Hebrew name for Elijah is Eliehu. And so they're, they're hearing this, and there's some confusion. They're, they're, they're thinking, this man is calling out to Elijah. Maybe Elijah is going to come and save him, not knowing that this truly is Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross. And so we see there that he goes, and this bystander takes it upon himself to go and get this, this sponge and, and put it on this reed to, to lift it up to Christ with this sour wine on it. You might say, well, why, why the sour wine? Because it was this drink of the common people, and it was used to quench thirst. Now, you have to remember, as Jesus is there hanging on the cross, going through everything that he's already been through with his body being beaten, the cat of nine tails ripping it off of his skin, the flogging that took place of Jesus for us, He then is nailed to that cross, and as that cross, some of you have seen me demonstrate this before, but as he's hanging on that cross and it goes to be put into that hole, it slumps down. You have to imagine it's just pulling on his flesh. 
And I know it's a little gruesome, but it's, it's the truth of what our Savior has done for us. Amen. And as he's doing that, every time he goes to take a breath, he has to push his body up. He's got to be spent. He's gone through so much agony and pain in our place. And they give him this. And this remaining bystanders, as I said, they, they tell him to do this, and it, it quenches Christ's thirst for that moment because of what he cries out next. 49 says, the other said, let us wait and see if Elijah will come and save him. And then 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now in John 19.30, John's account in the Synoptic Gospel says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John's account says that Jesus there says it is finished. Well, here in Matthew's account, it says that he cried out again with a loud voice. Matthew doesn't specifically say what he says there, but John answers the question for us. Now, I want to encourage you. This is just a little side note about these different sayings of what Christ is saying at the cross. Lord willing, we're going to have the Good Friday service at Friendship. And seven different pastors are going to stand before the congregation that night, and they're going to give the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. And I want to encourage you to be there if you can, because it's a powerful time of worship. Sorry, I just remembered that, and I wanted to make sure that I pointed that out. Here again, though, we see Psalm 69, 21b. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Another image in the Old Testament. This example. Now, Back to verse 50. Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I want to make sure we point out something very, very, very clearly of what it says there. Jesus cries out again and he yielded up his spirit. In the John account that I read just a moment ago, it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There's something very, very important to note here. Even in this horrific time of Jesus' death and this punishment that he's gone through, he maintains his authoritative control. Doesn't just say that Jesus died. Doesn't just say that they killed Jesus. It says that Jesus yielded up his spirit. Luke 23, 46 says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So here we have three different gospel accounts that point to what is being said in this moment. Matthew says that Jesus cries out. John says it is finished. And, and Jesus, in Luke's account, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The authoritative power of Jesus still intact on the cross right before he gives up his spirit and dies. Nobody killed him. He, he did suffer and he did die on our behalf. But even in that moment, knowing that the wrath of God has been poured out on him, knowing that all of this is taking place and it has all been fulfilled. The head has been crushed. 
commit my spirit. I yield my spirit to you, Father. So incredibly powerful what we read of what Jesus has done for us. So incredibly powerful. The second thing we see is that the good news is fulfilled through signs and wonders. Through signs and wonders. 51, the first part. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, the curtain of the temple, it's very significant in this moment for for what it means for us. Because this curtain of the temple, it is in the innermost part of the temple. And in this, it separates the, the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, it's this place in the temple where the high priest once a year would go into for the Day of Atonement. He was the only one that was able to go in there, the high priest. And in this moment where Jesus dies and his spirit is yielded up to God, the temple that separates the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies, it is torn straight down the middle. It is torn in two. There is no need for it anymore. There is no need for it because the way in Christ Jesus finishing the work at the cross, it has now been made access for anyone who would profess Christ. God is there for you at any time. The curtain is no longer needed. It has been torn in two, praise God. It is no longer needed. The temple has been torn in two. No longer is a mediator needed. No longer is a sacrifice coming before an altar in that sense needed. Now we are supposed to live our lives as a living sacrifice, as Paul tells us. Holy and acceptable to God. But no mediators needed. There's no more holy of holies needed in this moment where a curtain is needed because the perfect sinless lamb of God's blood was shed, making access to the Father again. What was originally designed in the Garden of Eden when Adam was created and the suitable helper Eve was there for him, that perfect communion between man and God that was destroyed by the effects of the fall in Genesis 3 has been made right because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The second part of 51 says, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now in Palestine, there does sit this major seismic rock, so earthquakes weren't very uncommon. However, the splitting of rocks, and as we read in the next verse, the opening of tombs, again, this is an act of God by what has just taken place at Calvary. It's not by chance that an earthquake just happened. This is creation reacting. This is God at work in this moment. We can also recall just another example in the Old Testament of how an earthquake is used as a symbol of God's mighty acts, especially against judgment. Joel 3.16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Verse 52 tells us that the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. It's like you read that and it's just like, wow. Wow. Here we see the power 
that opens the tombs of saints who had passed away. These bodies are resurrected. Which makes me think in a response to this of what has just happened to Christ. And it says there in 53 that they're coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. Then they went into the holy city and appeared to many. It's just this other example for us. For when we are in Christ, what happens to us at the day of the Lord? We are resurrected. We are resurrected. Scripture tells us that we will be resurrected and we will meet Christ in the sky. Now, the moment that we die on this earth, we are absent from the body and we are present with the Lord. We are in the Spirit. Christ, we're there with Christ Jesus. But in the end, we will resurrect and we will join, our bodies will join Him in the sky. The beauty of the resurrection. Verse 53 again says, And coming out of the tombs after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The last thing that we see, the, the good news, the first good news fulfilled, the first good news is fulfilled, and it's demanding a response. Demanding a response. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw that the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, saying, truly, this is, this was the Son of God. Imagine the centurion and the others present at that moment. They have just witnessed these unbelievable events that have happened. This brings them to this awe and this statement that truly this was the Son of God. This translation has an exclamation mark there at the end. It's this moment of just saying, truly, this was who he, he was who he said he was. Which brings the question to my mind for us. What does the finished work at the cross of Jesus Christ, what kind of a response does that bring for us? What kind of response does that bring you to? Well, Brian, I, I, I have a relationship with Christ. I mean, obviously, it, it brings me salvation, and, and I'm thankful for that. Well, I am too, praise God. But it begs me to ask the question, and this is just something for us to internally take in and reflect on. But do we think about the finished work at the cross every day, or do we tend to fall in line and think about it only at the time of Easter and Good Friday? You see, because the finished work of the cross and what Jesus has done should bring us to the sense of awe every day. It should bring us to the sense of awe to say, this is what the Son of God did for me. Who am I that you would be mindful of me when you went to the cross? Who am I? And we have to understand something. You see, when we reflect back on that first good news of Genesis 3.15, and Adam and Eve are sitting there in that moment, and they're, they're, they've been caught by surprise. Uh-oh, we messed up. 
And, and they're there in that moment, and God is saying these things, and he's, he's come before them right before he says that about the proto-evangelium. Rich Villados, who's a pastor in Queens, New York, this past week put out something on his Twitter account, and Walter shared it to me, and it is just so profound. Listen to what he says. Adam and Eve hide behind a tree, naked and covered in shame. Jesus hangs on a tree, naked and conquers shame. The cross of Jesus is the great reversal. In that moment, they are there and they're naked and they're ashamed and they've been busted. And yet Jesus goes to the tree, embarrassing what he's been through, and hangs there before the people. And yet he conquers shame. He conquers death. It is the great reversal. It is the great fulfillment of what God Almighty said in 315 of Genesis. What response does that bring us to? What response does that call from us? What does it make us want to do with this? 55 and 56 very quickly says, There were also women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, and among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Here we have all these ladies that are mentioned, and they were present with Jesus and disciples earlier in Galilee, and, and all through the Gospels we indicate these different bits of them and how they're following along with him. And then as we read in the resurrection account, and specifically we'll see part of it on Easter Sunday with our text that we'll read, Jesus appears to them at the tomb. But before we, before we get there to the resurrection, I, I, I really want us to really stop and, and really reflect on what we've heard about the cross and if you're, if you're a Christian in here and, and you've been a Christian for some time, you know, hearing the story of the cross preached, you may have heard it year after year and at different times through the year. And, and I pray that you haven't grown numb to hearing it over and over again. I pray that every time you come to read it, you, have to, you almost have to stop and reflect of just in awe of what God has done, almost bringing you to your knees. Which, which brings me to this next moment. We're going to take a few moments to, to have a prayerful reflection. And as you know, we, we've, we've started doing this here, and we will continue to do this until God tells us not to. But this time of prayer before we do anything else, This time of prayer and coming before God and saying, Lord, you have spoken today. How do you want me to respond to this? What are you calling me to do next, Father? In the midst of the chaos that's going on around me, how can the truth of what you've done at Calvary utilize me 
at such a hard, difficult time right now to minister to others. Now, I know with a bunch of stuff that's going on right now, we can't necessarily go and, and do a lot of stuff face-to-face with people and all that, but we can still come alongside people and minister to them in their need. I mean, right now is a very, very crucial time, I believe, for the church. How do we respond to something that's going on? And so we're going to take a moment and we're going to, and we're going to have quiet reflection and prayer. And then Walter's going to come up here with me and, and, and our Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee put this out the, the day before yesterday and they put a reminder out today. And, and then President Trump has announced that today is a day of prayer. And so we're going to have our moment of quiet reflective prayer and then we're going to lead in, in some very specific prayer requests and, and prayer throughout our congregation. So let's take a moment and let's stop and let's reflect on what God has said today before we move forward. Let's pray.